appreciate the opportunity to direct your thoughts along things uh, scriptural. Uh, tonight, I thought we'd continue a discussion that we started in our Bible study this morning on, in uh, Acts chapter 11 about the subject of benevolence and talk about the church's authorized work in the area of benevolence because this is very important. Uh, it's important that we understand this uh, responsibility of the church and that we're fulfilling it and that we're fulfilling it in the right ways. And the question is not that should the church be involved in benevolence and should Christians be involved in benevolence. The question is how should we be involved. And I want to talk with you about that uh, in our study tonight. First off, we have to lay some groundwork, and that is that we have to have Bible authority for all that we do. In the passage that Joseph read for us in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus' question as to why he is doing the things that he is doing, who gave him the authority to do them. And they asked Jesus, by what authority do you do these things and who gave you this authority? Now, Jesus acknowledges this is a valid question by his response. Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus is not saying, well, that's a stupid question. You don't have to have authority. What are you, why are you asking that? No, he didn't say that. He said, I'm just going to ask you a question. And that question is, the baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or men? And so Jesus is acknowledging that you need to have authority for the things that you do. And he also gives us two sources for that authority. And in the question about John's baptism, he says, you can get your authority from men or from God. Where did John get his authority for his baptism? Jesus acknowledges you need authority, and he says you can get it from either heaven or from men. And that is what we need to understand in our uh, uh, understanding as well, that we need to have authority for all that we do, and that authority needs to come from heaven, it needs to come from God. The authority does not come from men. Men are not a valid source of authority. And lots of scriptures teach us that we are not good sources for authority, that we cannot be the source of our authority. A lot of people, when you talk about religious things, will use the term, well, it seems to me that this would be right, this would be okay. This would be something that we ought to do. It seems to me. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23 says, You can't use it seems to me to be justification for what you do. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23 says, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Jeremiah says, saying it seems to me is not a valid, that's right or wrong. Your authority doesn't count. Furthermore, we need to be careful. I don't know if you read that as a small type there. We need to be careful about the term, I think, as our source of authority. A lot of times people say that in, in discussions. Well, I think this would be okay, or I think that would be okay. In Acts chapter 26, verse 9, in Acts chapter 26, verse 9, notice that Saul of Tarsus had been using this type of thinking and this type of approach as he's killing Christians. In Acts 26, verse 9, as, as, as Paul now is uh, recounting his life as a Jew, persecuting Christians, well, notice what he says in Acts 26, verse 9. Verily I thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Saul thought he was doing the right thing. If you ask him, hey, should we kill Christians? He would say, yeah, I think that's great. Let's go do it. It wasn't a good source of authority, was it? We can't use, I think, to determine what is right and what is wrong. Furthermore, 
we can't use the idea, well, I just don't see anything wrong with it. Some people say, well, you know, I think we ought to do this because I just don't see anything wrong with that. It must be okay because I don't see anything wrong with it. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. So there's a, says, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Well, it's, I don't see anything wrong with it. That seems right to me. What does the proverb writer say? It says, well, the end of that is death. We are simply not a valid source of authority. Our authority must come from the Bible. The scriptures are clear on that, that we must be getting our authority from the Bible. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. We have to have authority for all that we do. That authority comes from God. We're doing this in the name of the Lord Jesus. That doesn't mean that we say the name Lord Jesus every time we do something. But it says we're drawing upon His authority. We're doing it in His name or by His authority. And we do that, how? How can we do it by His authority? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says this. It says, For we walk by faith not by sight. Walking by faith means that we're doing things based upon our faith, not by sight. Sight would be things that seem right to me, that I think are okay, that I don't see anything wrong with. That'd be walking by sight. Walking by faith is by doing things that God has said. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. We're walking by faith. How do I get that faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How can I live? How can I make decisions? How can I do things that I know are pleasing to God? If I'm walking by faith, I'm pleasing to God. And I get that faith from God's Word. Our authority for all that we do must come from God's Word. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 tells us how to get that faith. And let's connect that with one more verse in Romans in chapter 14. Drop down to chapter 14, verse 23. Romans 14, verse 23. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So let me back that up. Let's look, let me back that up and let's look at these verses again. Romans, or Colossians 3, 17 says, I've got to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, I have to walk by faith, not by sight. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And if I do things without faith, Romans 14, verse 23 tells me it's sin. So I need to be able to go to God's word and have confidence that I have authority from God before I do anything. The authority must come from the Bible. Piece of groundwork, we haven't gotten into benevolence in particular yet, but one more piece of groundwork that we need to lay. And that is the ends do not justify the means. As we're talking about what the church should be involved in, or what individuals ought to be involved in, or what we ought to do or what we ought not to do. Many times people will make the argument, well, we ought to do this. This is authorized because of all the good that it would do. And that justification is used in a lot of different areas, but it's especially used in the area of benevolence. That the ends justify the means. That means if it's a good thing that happens, if a good outcome comes from it, then you can do anything that you want to do 
in the accomplishing of that good. That is simply not supported by the scriptures. Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 13. 1 Chronicles chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. I don't know if you can read that on the screen. If you can't, I doubt you can. But 1 Chronicles chapter 13, let's begin reading verse 1. The Israelites have uh, been, uh, well, they've been doing some things with the Ark of the Covenant that at, at best were not well advised. Um, and the Ark of the Covenant had been taken by the Philistines. You remember that the Ark of the Covenant, when they had it, it was uh, causing them all kinds of trouble. Their, their idols were falling down in front of it and breaking it to pieces and, and things were happening. They wanted to get rid of it. So they bring it back uh, to Israel and now David and his uh, people want to bring it back to Jerusalem. Now notice what is happening here in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, beginning of verse 1. And David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said to all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good to you, and that, that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and let them, uh, and with them also the priests and Levites, which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us, and let us bring the ark of God in the days of our God to us. For we inquired not at, not at it in the days of Saul, and all the congregation said that they would do so. For the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David gathered all Israel together from Shehor of Egypt, even unto the entering of Hemath, to bring the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim. And David went up, and all Israel to Bala, that is, to Kirjath-Jerim, which belongeth to Judah, to bring up thence the ark of, the, of God the Lord, that dwelleth between the cherubims, whose name is called on it. And they carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ohio drave the cart, and David and all Israel prayed before God with all their might, and with singing, and with harps, and with psalteries, and with timbrels, and with cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came into the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before the Lord. So, David and his men are doing something that needed to be done. They needed to get the ark back uh, where it belonged. But they were not carrying it like it had been designed to be carried. It had been designed to be carried on poles, you'll remember. And they put it on this, this uh, cart, and the uh, oxen or the, the cows are pulling the cart. And they stumble and shake and jar the, uh, the ark, and the ark is about to fall, Uzzah believes. And Uzzah, out of respect for that ark and out of care and concern for that ark, puts forth his hand to keep it from falling. Everyone would say, well, that's good, isn't it, that we keep the ark from falling. The problem was that Uzzah wasn't authorized to do that. God had forbidden anyone touching the ark. And in steadying the ark, Uzzah touches it. Now, what does God say? Well, Uzzah, you did a good thing there. I'm glad the ark didn't fall. You did a good thing. Don't worry about whether or not you had authority to touch the ark. You saved the ark from, stump, from being broken, that's a good thing. No, God didn't see it that way, did he? Uzzah had violated the rules. Even though his intentions were good, even though the end result was good, he violated the rules in doing that. And God struck him dead for that. 
And so that shows us that the ends do not justify the means. We can't conclude that something's authorized just because something that we deem is good comes out of that. The ends do not justify the means. So, that, with that foundation in, in mind, that we have to have authority for all that we do, that it can't come from men, it has to come from the Bible, and that the ends do not justify the means, let's look at this question then about the church's authorized work in the area of benevolence. And we must conclude from what we read in the Scriptures, again, authority coming from the Word of God, that the church's work is limited to that of saints. The church's benevolent work is limited to the area of saints. Let's look at that and what the Scriptures teach. First off, we have to note that there is a difference between the individual Christian and the collective group of Christians that make up the local church. There's a difference in that. The Scriptures are clear on that. We need to understand this because... There are some who say, well, the individual can do anything that the church can do, and that simply is not the case. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14, we see a distinction between the body or the church and the member. There's one body, or for the body is not one member, but many. So the church here is not just one member, but many members make up the church. That's pretty self-explanatory. We, we can just look around here and see, obviously, there's more than one person here, so there's many members, one body. The members of the church have different responsibilities as individuals than the church does as a whole. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 16. Notice this verse. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 16. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. This instruction would be applicable to us. If, let's say, that uh, one of us, are, we have uh, uh, a father who has died and our mother is a, is a Christian who needs to be helped, the responsibility would be on us as individuals to help our mother before the church would be responsible for that. There's a difference between the individual and what the church as far as responsibilities are concerned. In this instance, the church would not be authorized to help this widow because she has believing children who ought to be taking care of their mother. There's a difference in responsibility between the individual and the church. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17, in a familiar passage, this passage shows us that there's a difference between what the individuals do and what the church does. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 15, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee two, one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Do you see the difference between the individual and the church? I've been sinned against. I'm to go to that brother as an individual. If that brother won't take care of the sin, then I'm going to take one or two more so that there will be two or three who go to that brother. And if he won't listen and change his way, then what do I do? I bring it to the church. Now we're all... Members of the body, but we're individuals. We have different responsibilities as individuals than we do as a collective. This, church, um, this passage shows the distinction. 
And so there is a difference between what the individual does and what the church does. Bible class, the story, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. In, Anna, uh, in uh, chapter uh, 5, beginning of verse 2 of Acts, Acts 5, beginning of verse 2, Ananias and Sapphira kept back part of the price, or Ananias kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said unto Ananias, Why hath Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Ghost, and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilest it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why then hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. What does Peter say about Ananias and Sapphira's money? Did he say, well, that's just as good as if the church had the money? No. He said, your money is your own. And, but, and then when you give to the church, it's something else. There's a difference between the individual and the church. Let's keep that in mind then as we go to the Bible, looking for authority again in the area of benevolence. What is the church's authority in the area of benevolence? Let's look at every instance in the New Testament where the church was involved in benevolence and see if we can see a theme. You'll need your Bibles for this part of the sermon. This is a uh, listener participation part of the, of the presentation, so get your Bibles out. And let's look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Again, we're going to see several passages here in Acts that we've already studied uh, that show us how the church was involved in benevolence. In Acts chapter 2, beginning of verse 45. Acts 2, beginning of verse 45. Oh, 44, I'm sorry. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them, all among as, uh, divided them among all as anyone had need. And so the Christians, the newly... Uh, converted Christians are there in Jerusalem. They're from out of town. They're not, they hadn't intended on staying here. They came as they would have come every year for the Feast of Pentecost. They now have reason to stay so they can learn more about Christ and His uh, doctrine. And so they're staying and there's a need. And what are they doing? Those who have things are selling them and they're sharing it with other Christians so that they have what they need. Keep that in mind. We're seeing benevolence here directed towards Christians. In Acts chapter 4, look at, turn over a couple chapters to Acts chapter 4, beginning of verse 34. Acts 4, beginning of verse 34, talking about the Christians, sold them, is there anyone among them who lacked? For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. They distributed to who? To the Christians as anyone had need, there in Acts chapter 4. We read in Acts chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira want to get in on that action, but they don't want to do so honestly and straightforwardly, and they die as a result of that. Now drop down to Acts chapter 6. Look at verse 1. In Acts chapter 6, beginning of verse 1, this is when the seven are chosen. We've studied this not too long ago. Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, 
whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. We see here, the Christians had a need for their widows to be taken care of, and that need was directed to those believing widows. Now, drop in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Look at Acts chapter 11, the passage that we looked at this morning. We'll read it again just for a refresher. Acts 11, verse 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so there's an effort here directed at relieving the needs of the saints in Judea. Again, it's limited to Christians. Look at Romans chapter 15, or verses 25. We're looking for examples, for instruction, so we can get that faith that we need. So we can be walking by faith as we work together as a collective group of Christians. Romans chapter 15, beginning of verse 25. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. Very clear in this passage, isn't it? Their efforts were directed at the saints who are in Jerusalem. And a passage that we read often as we get ready to give of our means in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning of verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning of verse 1. Notice again how it is very explicit here. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. This collection was obviously for the needs of the saints because we see the church only being involved in uh, benevolence to Christians. And then if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 8 and 9, we won't read this context in its entirety for purposes of time, but you see again that um, there is very explicit wording here about the benevolent activities of this group being uh, isolated to saints. In verse eight, uh, 1 of chapter 8, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of, of God. So they, this was a work directed towards the saints. Um, and you can go on and read this throughout this context. Uh, verse not, 1 of chapter 9. Verse 1 of chapter 9. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was re uh, ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. 
Um, and so they were ready to give to the saints. Um, it goes on um, and uh, it talks about how they were, give, were giving generously and we are to give generously. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. While through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and with all and some translations will have men in there in italics. That's not in the original context. Their gifts were uh, so much that they were able to meet the needs of this, this group of Christians and I believe meet the needs of other Christians. Uh, their giving was, uh, throughout the context you hear, directed at saints. Uh, and so to make this uh, verse fit with, this, with the context, we have to understand that this is a, a gift for the saints. The churches were involved and benevolence directed towards saints. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 16, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 16, a passage that we benevolence, and we'll notice that it is direct. More instance of the church as a whole being involved in benevolence, and we'll notice that it is directed at Christians. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 16. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Well, the church is to relieve those that are really widows. What are the characteristics of someone who's really a widow? You can find out that at the beginning of verse 3. Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first show piety at home and to repay their parents for this is good and acceptable for God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. And it goes on and talks about uh, the things uh, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, well reported of for good works. Uh, this is a Christian. Those who are really widows in this context are Christians. And so we see every instance of the church being involved in benevolence. The church, their work was limited to that directed towards saints, towards Christians, towards believers. And someone might say, well, there's a lot of other people who have needs. There are a lot of other people who may be hungry or need clothing or shelter. Don't, don't, aren't we concerned about their needs? And we are. And we are directed to address those needs as individuals. Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 is speaking to each one of us individually and says we need to be ready to help all who are in need. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And so, as we talked about in our Bible class this morning, Galatians chapter 6 in this context is talking to individuals. And the instruction is for us to be willing and ready to help all who have need as we have opportunity, especially those who are Christians, but also to those who are non-Christians. But again, this is directed to the individual. We only see the church as a collective being involved in benevolence to Christians. And James chapter 1, verse 27. James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Right off in this context, in this immediate verse, I can tell that this is a passage directed to individuals keeping myself unspotted from the world. And pure and undefiled religion is to be concerned about those who are fatherless and those who are widows, those who would have 
benevolent needs. I, as an individual, need to be taking care of those needs as I can. And I can direct that activity to the Christian or the non-Christian. I have authority from God's Word for that. I can do that by faith, and I can walk by faith in that as an individual. We see the church's work from the Scriptures limited to saints. And one more point that we need to make along these lines is as we carry out this work, man-made institutions are not authorized. There are a lot of people who would like to get together and make some type of organization that would address the benevolent needs of Christians or non-Christians, and they would form institutions like Mark mentioned in our Bible class this morning. Some have formed the Churches of Christ Disaster Relief Organization, a man-made organization, to carry out the work that God gave the church to do. And God has not authorized us to make those institutions and those organizations because we simply don't read about them in the Bible. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. God has given us all that we need to be pleasing to Him. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We don't read about any human institutions being set up to carry. has instruction on what it needs to be doing, and we have examples of how that work is to be done. As we looked in Acts chapter 11, we can send money directly to elders so they can take care of the needs. We can, as we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we can give directly to the individual if they're part of our, our group. We can give directly to that individual, but we have no authority for the church to be involved in a man-made institution. We've got to have authority for all that we do. That authority has to come from God's Word, not from us. That authority is required so that we can walk by faith because anything done without faith is sin. We get faith by looking to God's Word. And so we've got to go to God's Word to see what can the church be involved in. And we see the church's work is limited to saints. We need to be committed to that. And I want to re reiterate one more time before we conclude tonight that the individual, the individual is different. The individual must provide benevolence to all as he or she has the opportunity. James 1, verse 27, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, As we have therefore our faith, we should not be overlooking the needs of those who are not Christians. We're going to be especially focused on those who are Christians, but as we have the opportunity to help those who are not Christians as individuals, we need to be engaged in that activity. I hope this has helped tonight understand a little bit better about what the work, church's work is in this important area of benevolence. Again, we want to just make sure that we have Bible authority for all that we do. Because, you know, there's a real problem, and we see it in the religious world around us today. If we do anything without Bible authority, then we have to allow everything that someone might want to do that has no Bible authority to be consistent. For example... If we want to say, you know what, I don't think it's important that we be giving 
uh, only to Christians. I think we, I don't agree, we, I agree we don't see it in the Bible that we shouldn't as a, as a church give to non-Christians, but I think it's okay to do this without authority. When you say that, you've opened up the door for anything and everything, if you're going to be consistent. If, you, if we can do one thing without Bible authority, then we can do everything without Bible authority. It's an all or nothing proposition. And so we got to make sure that everything we do is done by the authority of God's Word, and that is what God told us to do, isn't it? In Colossians 3, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. If you have questions about that or you'd like to talk about it with me further, please, let's, let's have that discussion. How are we doing in our spiritual walk with God? You know, that command to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus isn't just for us as a church. It's for us as individuals, too. Whatever you do, are we living our life, structuring our life, and basing our life on the authority of God's Word for us in our lives? If we're not, let's do that so we can receive the blessings from God that He's promised for those who are faithful. If there's anything we do to help you, please let us know while we stand and sing. <laughs>